This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity. Everything is changing so fast, but now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. These two young men disappear off the face of the earth, and the last person to see them live was this sheriff's deputy. And his stories were so inconsistent, so unbelievable. Been in criminal law for 35 years, and I'll tell you flat out, it's the strangest case, the most unsettling case. I could not find my child anywhere, no matter what number I dialed. That's what the sheriff tried to do. He said, don't be going around talking about, it. I said, to hell with you and to hell with your deputies. Somebody in there stinks. I had a reporter to tell me, an actual reporter from a major network when I called trying to get attention, saying, well, the victims aren't sympathetic. It's really damn hard to just disappear. Something is horribly wrong, and there is no justice so far. I'm Janine Zeitlin, and this is The Last Ride from the USA Today Network Florida and WGCU Public Media, distributed by the NPR Network. Episode 2, The Disappearance of Felipe Santos. In the first episode, we explored why civil rights attorney Ben Crump and filmmaker Tyler Perry, who you heard at the top, joined the fight for answers in this mystery. Here's what makes this case so unsettling. Stephen Calkins, who is white, was the last person seen with Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams. Both were men of color in their 20s. The men vanished three months apart from the same street in separate encounters with Calkins, who was a cop. Felipe vanished first. His brother saw him get into Deputy Calkins' patrol car after a minor traffic crash the morning of October 14, 2003, in Naples, a wealthy Gulf Coast town. Felipe was 23 and undocumented. Felipe's brother reported him missing to the sheriff's office and told investigators he was last seen with Deputy Calkins. When a supervisor asked Calkins what happened, Calkins said he arrested Felipe for not having a driver's license and then quickly unarrested him because he was so polite. Then, he said he gave Felipe a ride. In this episode, we'll dig into some of the unanswered questions investigators and the Santos family still have about that day. We'll take a detailed look at what the Collier County Sheriff's Office did and didn't do when Felipe disappeared. How did the Sheriff's Office react when they learned one of their own was the last person to be seen with Felipe? Here's my colleague, investigative reporter Ryan Mills, talking to retired Collier County Sheriff Don Hunter in 2020. Hunter was in charge at the time of both disappearances. I wondered if looking back, if you said, I wish we had taken a harder look at him after this Felipe case. There's nothing suspicious on a deputy sheriff unarresting somebody and giving them a ride. That's courteousness and professionalism and something that we promote. I'm not suspicious yet. You wouldn't be. Put yourself in my position for a moment. Why would you be suspicious? He's actually done a nice thing. Anybody that I would have told this story to in the public would have said, wow, that's a great deputy sheriff. That's what we want more of. Ryan's question clearly annoyed the sheriff. So, no. Looking back and saying, gosh, I wish I would have not married that person or wish I wouldn't have dated that girl, uh... Come on, Ryan. Of course, knowing what we know today, would we have chosen to do things differently? Yeah, but 
Based on what, I don't know. <laughs> At the time, we had no information. In this episode, we'll also learn more about Felipe Santos and the milestone in his personal life that made his disappearance so shocking to his family. On the day Felipe vanished, his family initially assumed Deputy Calkins had taken Felipe to jail. When Felipe didn't come home, they started searching. They started to get answers about where he wasn't, right? That's Julia Perkins of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, talking to Ryan and my other colleague, investigative reporter Melanie Payne in 2019. The coalition helped Felipe's family. He wasn't in jail. He had never been to the jail. He wasn't in any of the local hospitals. They started to get more and more worried, right? Where then could he be? Julia has worked for the renowned farmworker advocacy group about as long as I have worked in Southwest Florida. So I've been here in Immokalee and with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers for about 19 years. Felipe was a farm worker and attended their meetings in Immokalee, where he lived. Immokalee is a farming town that attracts immigrant labor. It's about 40 miles east of Naples. I believe it was through the coalition that I first learned about this case in 2005, two years after Felipe went missing. I had just started working as a reporter in Naples. Felipe's family waited two weeks to file a missing person report, but according to Julia, they had tried to file one sooner. They were told, well, you know, he's an adult. He's, you can't make a report for a certain amount of time. They weren't told, oh, you know, this is strange that he's gone missing. Make a report. That was discouraged. By whom? By whoever they talked to at the, I don't know if it was at the substation or downtown in Naples. Back then, Florida law didn't provide guidance on missing adults, only kids. The law was expanded in 2008 after two young women went missing and law enforcement did not search for them. Now Florida law requires police to take a report for any missing person. In any case, according to Hunter, the former sheriff, the reporting delay hurt efforts to find Felipe. First of all, two weeks or more, well, why didn't you come in to tell us about this a little sooner when we have a shot at this? However, it's clear in records and interviews that Felipe's loved ones were trying to find him during those two weeks. They talked to people near the site of the traffic crash in Naples. They contacted the Mexican consulate. They called family in Mexico. They asked an English-speaking friend, Reyes Martinez, for help. Before the missing person report was filed, Martinez called the sheriff's office to report that Felipe had not been seen since his brother saw Calkins place him in his car. Her call was reported in a memo from a sergeant. The memo stated that Calkins, who was ranked a corporal, happened to be in the office when Martinez called to report the disappearance and the Calkins link. Here's my colleague Bill reading from that memo. I then informed Martinez that Corporal Calkins was present with me and turned the phone over to him to help answer any further questions. Corporal Calkins talked to Martinez for several minutes, answering her questions and urging her to file a missing persons complaint. I, too, stressed the importance of filing a report on the matter. I thought it was interesting that Calkins himself suggested filing a report. My colleague Ryan found Martinez in 2019. She was living in southwest Florida but had lost touch with Felipe's family. Did you feel like you saw the Cali County Sheriff's Office do a lot of investigating to try to find Felipe? At that time, no, sir. Martinez said she was afraid to be too involved because Calkins was a cop. Julia Perkins also said Felipe's family, as immigrants, didn't feel entirely safe aggressively pushing for answers. And apologies for the buzzing phone you'll hear in this next clip. It's a hard time 
to be an immigrant in this country. And I think that for the family members who are here, that played a big role in how they felt comfortable or, or not comfortable in continuing to be in front of the media and pushing this and pushing the sheriff's department and those kinds of things. They definitely felt like it wasn't necessarily the safest thing for them to do. In my interviews over the years with undocumented immigrants, I've found there's a legit fear of deportation. And to many people, local law enforcement falls under the umbrella of people who could force you to leave the country. On October 29, 2003, Felipe's brother Jorge filed the official missing person report. He told the sheriff's office about the Calkins connection. According to the report, Jorge made it very clear that he did not think Felipe would just leave his family. Indeed, Jorge said Felipe had never left his family without telling them where he was going. In 2019, Ryan and Melanie interviewed a lieutenant first assigned to the case. My name is Jason Robleski. I'm a lieutenant with the Collier County Sheriff's Office. I worked in the Violent Crimes Bureau, which investigated everything from missing persons to homicides. to There was a wide array of crimes and not crimes that we would respond to. In this particular instance, I responded to the North Naples substation to investigate the disappearance of Felipe Santos. I spoke with his brother, Jorge. At the time, there wasn't anything really to go on other than that he just hadn't been seen for a while, and the last contact was with a a deputy with the sheriff's office. Did that raise any red flags at that point? And kind of how did you go about investigating that, knowing that there was a a sheriff's office member that was possibly the last person seen with him? At that point, no, it did not raise any any red flags. Tell me about the, the challenges of that. You said that there wasn't a lot to go on. Uh, Is that because of that two-week kind of gap between the last time they saw him and is that part of the challenge and and how did that play into it? I guess it was part of the challenge that it was two weeks. However, the biggest challenge is there was nothing to indicate why he would have left his family, left the area. But that being said, his brother did admit that he was in the country illegally. We thought he was going to be arrested for not having a driver's license at the time. So initially, we thought there may have been some reasons why he didn't want to be found or wasn't in the area. Yet there was nothing that made him feel like Felipe was particularly vulnerable. We had no information that he was suicidal. We had no information that he was kidnapped or anything like that. So our initial level of concern wasn't overly high. However, that being said, we could tell that the family appeared to be concerned. But it took a few days to dig in. Here's Ryan asking Sheriff Hunter about that. My impression, just kind of from reading the reports I have, is that wasn't like an all-hands-on-deck, we got to go find Felipe kind of thing. Do you feel like, you know, kind of looking back, that that's something that could have been done faster, that there should have been more attention to that case right away? Hunter told Ryan it was a matter of resources and timing. Felipe was reported missing right before Halloween when the agency was focused on making sure sex offenders stayed home during trick-or-treating. Unfortunately, we did not have unlimited resources in Violent Crimes Bureau, so they're dealing with multiple cases all at the same time. According to the case files, the first time that Deputy Calkins was formally asked about Felipe's disappearance was three weeks after Felipe went missing, six days after the official missing person report was filed. Calkins spoke with Lieutenant Robleski in early November 2003. Here's Robleski talking to Ryan about his interview with Calkins. His answers were appropriate. And again, I had nothing really to ask him in depth other than, you know, just the basics. So initially, no, there wasn't anything that, that stood out. 
Calkins told Robleski he dropped Felipe off at a Circle K gas station less than a mile from the crash site. Calkins said he did that so Felipe could use the phone. The same day Robleski interviewed Calkins, another investigator headed to the Circle K to check for video from the day Felipe disappeared to see if there was any security footage that could back up Calkins' story. There was only video inside the Circle K. There was no video outside the Circle K. So he viewed the video from inside the store and didn't see anything. Meaning they did not spot Felipe. So they couldn't verify Calkins' version through video footage, but that didn't make them particularly suspicious. Was there ever anything, you know, the hair on the back of your neck raised kind of thing in saying maybe Steve is more culpable here than we were initially thinking? During the initial Felipe Santos investigation prior to Terrence Williams going missing, no. Terrence would vanish three months later. Despite the efforts Robleski described, the coalition of Immokalee workers did not perceive that finding Felipe was a priority for the sheriff's office. Here's Julia Perkins. It wasn't on the news. They weren't blasting it out. There weren't flyers hung up around town. They weren't talking to the media about it. It was just kind of a, another person in their file. The lack of early media coverage is very clear. We searched our archives and found no coverage of Felipe's disappearance until several months after the disappearance of Terrence Williams. And even then, according to our old stories, it doesn't look like the sheriff's office initially shared that Terrence was the second man who had vanished after last being seen with Calkins. The families and their advocates would make that connection and share it with the media. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Betterment. The drama of having an enemy-turned-lover is never chill, but your investing portfolio should be. Betterment is the investing app that lets you be totally chill about your finances. Their automated tech makes it easy to get in the market and stay in the market. Save the drama for that moment when you realize your mortal enemy is actually your soulmate. Betterment. Be invested. And totally chill. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. History is intriguing, but unlike the present, it can feel far off. On NPR's Throughline, we bring it back to life. I will toss you in the air like a lion. I will leave no one alive in your realm. Go inside the stories from then that shape the world we live in now. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Solgar. As people age, cellular function declines, which may impact changes in energy and strength. Solgar Cellular Nutrition is a holistic collection of cellular nutrients formulated to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Learn more at cellularnutrition.solgar.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, we go back in time to where it started. Like, really started. To answer one important question, how did we get here? Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Dune Part 2 is here. It's the biggest movie of the year so far. Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya bring their star power and two sets of really impressive cheekbones to this epic space opera, which might even improve on the book it's based on. We'll talk all about it. Listen to NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. 
Nearly three weeks after Felipe Santos was officially reported missing, the Collier County Sheriff's Office issued a missing person flyer for him. The flyer described Felipe as 5'7", 150 pounds, and with a thin mustache. It did not mention who he was last seen with or the circumstances of his disappearance. Lieutenant Jason Robleski told my colleague Ryan that the sheriff's office was doing a lot of small things to find Felipe. We distributed those flyers as much as we possibly could just to try to um, build a little bit of interest to see, if, hey, does anybody recognize Felipe? We were checking the um, different bus services out in Immokalee on a regular basis to see if maybe he had left the Immokalee area. Did you get anything from that? I mean, was there much in the line of uh, people calling up with tips or suggestions or anything? No, at that point, we didn't get a lot of callbacks at all. They were also checking hospitals and jails throughout the region. They entered his information into statewide and national databases, and they worked with the FBI to reach Felipe's family in Mexico. However, it seems a primary focus for the sheriff's office was determining if Felipe had fled the country. Early on, it doesn't seem like they saw Felipe as a victim in need of urgent help. Indeed, in one of the first stories published that revealed Calkins was the last to be seen with not one, but two missing men, former Sheriff Hunter said, quote, These men may be purposely avoiding being found by law enforcement, end quote. Hunter told the reporter there was evidence Felipe had headed to Mexico. In case files, I could not find any such evidence, and the Collier County Sheriff's Office confirmed that there was never another verified and credible sighting of Felipe or Terrence after they were seen with Calkins. Also, that initial assumption that Felipe fled discounted what his family was saying, that he wasn't the kind of man who would just disappear, especially since Felipe had a very good reason to stay. Everyone was just super excited. She was this beautiful little, little itty-bitty thing. Felipe was a new dad. Everything that we knew was indicated, and what his brothers have always said is that, you know, he really, he was so excited to be a dad. The baby was just four months old. Julia Perkins of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers told Ryan that the baby girl was the first child for Felipe Santos and his partner, Apollonia. You know, Apollonia said he was a really doting father. He was always wanting to hold the baby and help when he'd come back from work. So there was no, from your perspective, any sort of like he was unhappy about being a dad or he, you know, this baby no. was changing his life and he didn't no. like it or anything like that. No, he wasn't the kind of guy who was like going and hanging out with his friends or anything like that. He was a family man. The family friend, Reyes Martinez, echoed that. They were um, nice kids. They were only, like, working, like, work all the time. You didn't see that he was an angry person or he was upset or anything like that and he wanted to leave? No, sir. No, 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 sir. Not at all. As I listened to the interviews Melanie and Ryan had done, I wanted their insight on what went wrong during the investigation into Felipe's disappearance. We talked on Zoom in late 2021. What about in the Felipe Santos case? What were some things that really stood out for you guys? What stood out for me was how the police viewed that was it wasn't serious, you know? That's the thing that that kind of stood out for me was just how lackadaisical they were about a guy who went missing. With Felipe, there just there was a, a noticeable lack of information. They didn't do a deep investigation when he disappeared. I can't say 100% why Felipe's disappearance received less attention from the sheriff's office and the media early on. 
but I can make some informed guesses. I think the sheriff's office initially assumed Felipe had fled the country because of his immigration status. As for the media, there's a documented pattern of missing men and people of color getting far less media attention than missing white women. Ryan, Melanie, and I didn't want to perpetuate that. To learn more about Felipe, we tried to reach Felipe's brothers, but didn't get calls or texts back. Ryan and Melanie had tried to reach other members of his family, too, a cousin who had been vocal early on. They tried Apollonia, Felipe's partner. They tried the family's attorney. Either they couldn't find them or they didn't want to be on the podcast. Ryan and Melanie spent a day knocking on doors in Immokalee, where Felipe had lived before encountering Calkins in North Naples, which borders some of the richest zip codes in the nation, while in Immokalee, about 40% of residents live in poverty. Hola. Hola. The trailer where Felipe lived was on the corner of a small lot of trailers off Main Street, near a Mr. Taco and a Fiesta food market. Of the few people who answered their doors, nobody knew Felipe or his family. That wasn't surprising given that nearly two decades had passed and that Felipe had lived in a transient neighborhood. Ryan, Melanie, and I were frustrated by not hearing directly from those closest to Felipe. So I was relieved to discover a critical document buried in one of my many records requests to the Collier Sheriff's Office. It was an FBI questionnaire filled out by one of Felipe's brothers. It wasn't public back when I first reported on these disappearances. But it was now, and I was grateful to read it. It was the first record that gave me a sense of who Felipe was. In the questionnaire, Felipe's brother described him as a calm, hardworking, and respectful man who loved his family. Here's my colleague Luis reading from it. Felipe es una persona que siempre se preocupaba por su familia. Nunca se portó mal. Felipe's brother said there were no warning signs or changes in Felipe's behavior before he disappeared. He didn't do drugs and only drank every few weeks. Consumía solamente alcohol una vez por 15 días. It said Felipe never got into arguments or fights. He was Catholic and went to church every so often. He liked to play basketball. And he was one of five brothers. The family was from Santa Cruzitla, a town of about 4,000 in Oaxaca, Mexico, with a large indigenous population. The Coalition of Immokalee Workers told us there's a migratory stream between the town and Immokalee. Felipe spoke the indigenous language Zapoteco, which probably meant that Spanish was not his family's first language. According to his brother, Felipe nurtured the very American dream of building a home and improving life for his family. Su sueño era salir adelante, tener un hogar donde vivir con su familia. Two years after Felipe disappeared, I interviewed Felipe's father by phone. His name was Catarino. He was a farmer in Oaxaca. We had to make special arrangements for him to go to a place with a phone. Catarino told me Felipe came to the United States at 19 with dreams of making money and starting a family. My son is well-mannered, he said. He's not a bad person by any means. Then his father began to cry. I remember struggling to find adequate words to comfort a stranger so far away and in such a difficult situation. I didn't keep the phone number. Back then, I had no idea I'd still be reporting on these cases so many years later. In the year after Felipe disappeared, Felipe's partner Apollonia had been vocal in demanding answers. 
Before he disappeared, the two had planned to marry. But when my colleague Melanie showed up at Apollonia's door in 2019, she had little to say. Melanie found her living in an apartment in rural Florida. There's nothing out there. It didn't look like, you know, except maybe a little smattering of a taco truck and, you know, little restaurant maybe, but a lot of agricultural stuff. She was on her way to church when Melanie and a Spanish-speaking reporter managed to find her. She came out in the hallway and she was like, I can't talk about it because of my daughter. And it wasn't like, oh, I've forgotten about him, but she does have this new life and everything. Felipe's daughter would be a young adult by now. I don't want to exploit their trauma, but I share this anecdote because it reflects the waves of loss created when someone goes missing. We were chasing a past that few wanted to relive. And yet there was more we could glean about Felipe's disappearance from the case files. And what we found brought up even more questions. Records gave us Calkins' version of what happened after Felipe got into his car. But there were several details in his stories that didn't make sense or couldn't be verified. According to an interview transcript, Calkins said he gave Felipe a ride to the Circle K. He issued him citations and gave him back his car keys. Calkins said, quote, I've known that area for a long time, and I know the manager— and the people that work at that store are all Hispanic. And I knew he wouldn't have any trouble getting some help or using the phones. In a 2020 interview with CNN, now-retired Collier Sheriff's Detective Kevin O'Neill said it didn't make sense to him why Calkins would give Felipe a ride just to separate him from his car. O'Neill was assigned the case in 2006. By that time, Felipe's disappearance was receiving far more scrutiny from law enforcement. O'Neill also said it didn't make sense that no one heard from Felipe after Calkin said he dropped Felipe off at the Circle K. Here's O'Neill in that CNN interview. The recording was made on the phone of a sheriff's office employee, so you'll hear some background noise. He could have called a cab, went to work, could have called his brother, come pick me up. There is no communication at that. It defies logic. He had plenty of time to report to work, even walk to work if he couldn't use the phone. But he could have walked to work, he could have, he had the money to take a cab, and this just never happened. There's no evidence to corroborate the fact that he was taken to the Circle K. There are other questions about Calkins' timeline that morning. First, there's some time right after the crash where we don't know definitively where Calkins was. O'Neill said there was no technology on the patrol cars back then to verify that deputies were located where they reported being located to dispatch. There is now. And, according to the sheriff's office, there's no location data for Calkins' old phone, nor did the agency retain the phone. There's about an hour between when Calkins reported leaving the crash at 7.35 that morning and when Calkins arrived at a hospital at 8.38. Calkins said he went to the morning briefing after dropping off Felipe. According to his dispatch log, he also did a site check of an elementary school about two miles from the sheriff's substation before arriving at the hospital. O'Neill said he could trust that Calkins went to a hospital because there's a report number linked to that hospital call. The CNN reporter asked if Calkins had enough time after the crash that morning to kill Felipe Santos and dispose of his body. I don't know. It's a real short time frame, you know, of what the times between that traffic crash and the response to the hospital. Anything is possible, but it's a short-term window. So it's an hour and three minutes. Could something have happened in an hour and three minutes? Absolutely. But can I prove anything happened in an hour and three minutes? No. 
but there is a window of time. Felipe's body has never been found. Calkins has long denied having anything to do with his disappearance. Retired Sheriff Don Hunter told Ryan that Calkins, per the agency's policy, should have notified dispatch of the ride he gave to Felipe Santos. His dispatch records do not reflect that he dropped Felipe off at Circle K, as he said he did. He certainly did not follow policy and procedure. The procedure is that when you offer a person a ride in a sheriff's vehicle, that you are to activate your radio, inform dispatch. So this is uh, Deputy Sheriff Calkins. I'm going to do a transport. My location is such and such at this time. My vehicle mileage is such and such. When they got to that location, he gives an address or a location, and you may show me 10-8 again, I mean back in service. He didn't do any of that. He intentionally avoided that was my conclusion. But the case files show no indication he was reprimanded for that. There are also questions about the tickets Calkins wrote Felipe. Records show Calkins wrote Felipe tickets for no insurance, careless driving, and not having a driver's license. The signature of Felipe Santos appeared on the tickets, but there are doubts if Felipe actually signed his own name. Here's Julia Perkins again talking to Ryan. The family said that it did not look like his signature. Did they ever have anything that they could compare? I mean, From what I understand, they provided some signatures. To the sheriff's office? To the sheriff's office, I'm pretty sure. I asked the Collier Sheriff's Office about the signature issue. They didn't have any evidence that they compared verified examples of Felipe's handwriting to the handwriting on the tickets. However, they did find an analysis of Calkins' handwriting that was done by a forensic document examiner in Tampa. The examiner's goal was to find out if there was evidence Calkins forged Felipe's signatures on the three tickets. The expert examined 54 pages of handwriting by Calkins and compared them to the Felipe Santos signatures that appeared on the tickets. His conclusion? Calkins did not sign Felipe's name to the tickets. So the analysis couldn't verify if Felipe himself signed the tickets, but it did suggest that Calkins didn't forge Felipe's signature. But this analysis didn't come until nearly a year after Felipe disappeared, and I wasn't sure how much this kind of analysis could even be trusted. I did a little searching and found a 2009 report in the FBI archives that concluded that forensic document examination was a valid expertise. I looked through local court records to find the tickets to see if I noticed anything. On the tickets, Felipe's signature is more printed than signed. Calkin's signature has a distinctive right-leaning tilt. It's hard for me to conclude much else. Of course, the tickets have never been paid, and because Felipe never appeared for a court date related to one of the tickets, a warrant was issued for his arrest. That warrant remained active until the state finally dismissed it a decade after Felipe had vanished. The tickets, though, are still pending, as is the question about whether Felipe actually signed them. Listen to The Last Ride, the podcast investigating the disappearances of two men last seen with the same Florida sheriff's deputy. Join us for a new episode, a conversation with Marcia Williams before the 20th anniversary of her son's disappearance. It's okay for you to tell my story. If you don't know who you may be talking to, that could put their finger right there. Listen to all nine episodes of The Last Ride, part of the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. We have perverted our Constitution. 
perverted it with regard to a welfare clause that doesn't exist, perverted it with regard to... The question was, is he too dangerous? Is he too crazy? The new podcast, Landslide, telling the story of the presidential races that led to today's divide. Those are the seeds of the culture war. Landslide, part of the NPR Network. Subscribe now. Spend time in any American city, and you'll likely encounter someone with untreated psychosis. Lost Patients is a new podcast examining our maze-like system for treating severe mental illness, which loses patients to an endless loop between the streets, jail, and hospitals. Does it have to be this way? For the history, the reality, and hopefully some solutions, listen to Lost Patients from KUOW and the Seattle Times, part of the NPR Network. Not a single state, we concede not a single vote. The new podcast, Landslide. The forgotten story of how a presidential race led to today's parties and division. Winning the presidency is the most important thing, but how much do you do to win it? Landslide, part of the NPR network. Subscribe now. On NPR's through line. Bread, freedom and national dignity. It was time for the regime to fix itself. That's why I was going out. Remembering the Arab Spring. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. There is another very important investigation to highlight in the disappearance of Felipe Santos, the internal affairs investigation of Deputy Stephen Calkins. It was done by the Collier Sheriff's Office in 2003, shortly after Felipe disappeared. Now, the internal affairs investigation was separate from the investigation into Felipe's disappearance. It was triggered by an allegation of misconduct Felipe's brother Jorge made against Calkins the same day that Jorge reported Felipe missing. I read the handwritten complaint from Jorge. His English wasn't great. Jorge wrote, Want to know where Officer 235 left him? Felipe had $100 with he at the time. He could call anyone at work because Felipe was not that far from work. As I read the statement, I thought about what a nightmare it must have been for Jorge as he tried to navigate this situation in a foreign language while also searching for his brother. The consequences of internal affairs investigations can be serious. They can end with deputies losing their jobs or facing disciplinary action. But neither happened to Calkins after Felipe vanished. I reviewed the internal affairs file and was surprised just how few records there were. Only one sworn statement was taken. That statement came from Deputy Stephen Calkins. Lieutenant Robleski said that the agency did interview Felipe's brothers, even though they did not take sworn statements. They were officially interviewed, taped statements, no. However, they did have limited information that basically their brother was missing, but they didn't have any direct information, evidence to why he was missing. The Mexican consulate in Miami expressed concern that the internal affairs investigation was not thorough. In a 2004 letter to former Sheriff Hunter, the consul general highlighted the lack of statements from Felipe's brothers, especially given that they had witnessed Calkins place Felipe into his patrol car. Here's my colleague Rick reading from that letter. Their testimony could be crucial for the investigation. The consul general also took issue with Hunter telling the press that Felipe might be hiding out from law enforcement. The letter read... As you well know, Mr. Santos does not have a criminal record. As I explained to you during our meeting, neither our network of offices in Mexico, which comprises 130 offices working in close cooperation with state and local authorities, nor his family has reported Mr. Santos' presence in our country. Also, 
Camille Churchill, the woman who was in the crash with Felipe, wasn't interviewed in the initial internal affairs investigation into Calkins either. We heard from Camille in the first episode. And Felipe's partner, Apollonia, told a reporter soon after Felipe disappeared that no one had questioned her about Felipe's disappearance either. She did not think the investigation was thorough. Case files show that Calkins gave his sworn statement in early November 2003 when a sergeant asked him for his version of what happened. We only have a written transcript of that. Calkins said, quote, I, at the time, decided to, instead of taking him to jail, he was being very polite and cooperative, um, I decided to issue him citations for the offenses instead of taking him to the jail. And then I took him or transported him just a few blocks away. I didn't want to leave him by his car because I was afraid he was going to drive off, as I've seen in the past. Here's former Sheriff Hunter talking to Ryan about why he felt it would have been acceptable to let Felipe go rather than arrest him. If they were being combative in terms of how they, how they viewed the world, I don't need a license to drive in your stinking county, uh, you know. Well, they're probably going to jail. But this guy, according to Calkins, was very apologetic and uh, being very nice about the whole matter, and it was a fender bender. I found the length of the internal affairs interview with Calkins striking. The interview lasted just 11 minutes. That's it. And the transcript took up only three full pages. There's not a set length on internal affairs investigations. But when I reported on these kinds of cases for other stories... They're typically longer and involve more than one sworn statement. Here's my coworker Bill reading from the transcript at the point a sergeant questioned Deputy Calkins. Did you bring any harm whatsoever to Mr. Santos? Calkins, no, I did not. Okay, have you had any further contact with Mr. Santos since you dropped him off and last saw him headed toward the payphones? Calkins, no, I have not. I was astounded when I first read this. The questioning seemed so simplistic given the circumstances. The sergeant was questioning the last person seen with a man who vanished without reason. Still, about a month after this interview, a captain issued his conclusion. Here's Bill reading from it. I believe that Calkins' actions in this situation were reasonable, lawful, and proper. I recommend a finding of exonerated. A lieutenant and a legal advisor agreed. So at least three people at the sheriff's office came to the same conclusion. Calkins did nothing wrong. The internal affairs case was closed in December 2003, about a month after the complaint was made. Basically, they took Calkins at his word. My colleague Melanie talked by phone to an expert about that. My name is David Thomas, and I am a professor of forensic studies at Florida Gulf Coast University. He's also a retired police officer. All they did was said, hey, Steve, what'd you do? And he said, I dropped off at Circle K, and that was the end of it. Why was he not investigated at that moment. A lot of times, and I hate to say this, but they believe they take an officer's word at face value and they just leave it like that until there's a reason not to believe it. Okay. So that's not very comforting, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. So let me ask you this. If yeah. I had been the last person that someone had been seen with, what would they, what would a normal response be? And that person After, didn't come back. If the people don't let it go, then they're going to go back to you and they're going to backtrack all of your alibis. 
and then they will take and they literally will tear your life apart. Okay, where did you last see him? What time were you there? And that's how they will dig. So it's, it's a difference because you're Joe Schmo, the citizen, and the other person's a cop. And there's, there's just a difference in that. None of that was comforting to me either. However, the sheriff's office did begin to question Calkins more when Terrence Williams disappeared in January 2004. Former Sheriff Don Hunter reopened the internal affairs investigation tied to Felipe's disappearance just a month after it was closed. That round, the agency finally interviewed Camille Churchill, the woman who was in the crash with Felipe. But she wasn't interviewed until May. A lieutenant concluded she added no information that would change the finding of exonerated. They closed the case again. So essentially, Calkins was exonerated twice of wrongdoing by his agency in the complaint lodged by Felipe's brother. In the interview Ryan did with the former sheriff, Hunter admitted that exonerated was not the right finding. I would have used unfounded. We don't have any evidence that anything happened here. It sounds like the sheriff took Calkins at his word because he didn't think a deputy would lie under oath. He knows that, and it it could subject him to removal from office, and his career is gone, blown up. So I have reason to believe that he's telling the truth. And, Hunter noted, Calkins' statements didn't conflict with what Felipe's brother reported. There's nothing here inconsistent with what the brother even said. It's not like Calkins slapped Santos around before putting him in the vehicle or flung him against the car or handcuffed him or was in any way disrespectful or unprofessional. He's just saying he got in a car and he has not come home. Lieutenant Jason Robleski told Ryan and Melanie in 2019 that they just weren't all that focused on Calkins when Felipe disappeared. Did you ever search his patrol car you know, in the days or weeks after Felipe disappeared? No, we did not. You weren't looking at him as a suspect at that point? We had no inclination that there could be anything other than a missing person. and We were, we were trying to find the reasons why he could be missing. But clearly they didn't view Calkins as potentially one of those reasons. Calkins has never been arrested or charged in the disappearances. He has never been identified as a suspect. Robleski made that clear. And just to, to go back a little bit, you mentioned talking prime suspect. To this day, unfortunately, there hasn't been any evidence to show that Calkins would be a prime suspect. He's certainly a person of interest. He's probably the person of interest. But we don't have any definitive evidence to take that any further. So what was your reaction when you, your case became linked with this other case because of Steve? Initially, I remember thinking that it was a crazy coincidence. In my mind, initially, I don't know if I could have thought of the possibility that a deputy could have something to do with it. I work with 1,300 employees here at the sheriff's office. Back then, it was probably 1,000, 1,200, something like that. So I wouldn't think that a, that a deputy would could be involved in something like this. So I think initially, I was like, well, that's a terrible coincidence, but we need to look at it a little bit further. So your initial reaction wasn't like, oh my God, he clearly did it. It was, that seems so out of character for the sheriff's, for a sheriff's office employee. Yeah, just in my mind of, of thinking. I, that's just not the way I thought that a deputy of the sheriff's office could, could be involved in something like that. It was surprising to hear the agency, whose job it is to be skeptical of what people tell them, had so little skepticism when it came to one of their own. Melanie, Ryan, and I talked about that. He said something in that interview to the effect of, we don't suspect a policeman. 
I thought about that because, you know, my dad was a cop and like when cops do bad things, you know, like I said, something about the cop doing something, my father was so reluctant to believe that a cop would engage in any type of illegal behavior. (laughs) And I felt for them a little bit because this is their coworker and someone that they know. I kind of understood why they may have kind of thought, nah, this, (laughs) this isn't happening, right? It couldn't be Steve. In an interview I did with Calkins at his Naples doorstep around January 2006, Calkins told me he was a victim of bad luck. That appears to be Calkins' last interview with the press. His lawyer declined our more recent request to speak to him. What I appreciated about the interview with Lieutenant Robleski was his recognition that he wished they would have dug deeper into Calkins when Felipe disappeared. Here's Melanie talking to Robleski. One of the things you said is, in hindsight, you, you always would have done something differently. What would you have done differently in this case? Certainly there's a lot of things that knowing what we know now, knowing that three months later that Terrence Williams was going to go missing, when Felipe went missing, there was a lot of things that we could have dug deeper into Steve Calkins at the time, but there was no way to to know that at the time. Again, it's one of those things where when you don't have the information, you're not going to do it. But I look at it now and say, well, well I wish I had that information because that, that, that could have gone a long ways and, and potentially we would have one less person missing. The second person who went missing after encountering Deputy Calkins was 27-year-old Terrence Williams. That would happen on January 12, 2004, three months after Felipe vanished. On the next episode, we'll talk in-depth with Terrence's stepfather and mother. Terrence was her only child. We'll learn how Terrence spent the final hours before his disappearance, and we'll discover why Terrence's family had begged him not to drive the car that Calkins would eventually pull over. And we'll hear the alarming discoveries Terrence's family made when they decided to launch their own investigation into his disappearance. Would you say there was a particular moment when you really knew, like, this is not right? I was in the very beginning. Something was rotten in the car right then. I feel like it was just a normal day. You know? And then it became a nightmare. And then it became a nightmare. (laughs) Literally. I had no idea that the world was so evil. I had no idea. That's next time on The Last Ride, distributed by the NPR Network. If you have any information about this case, call the Collier Sheriff's Office at 239-252-9300 or Crime Stoppers at 800-780-8477. I'm Janine Zeitlin, producer, writer, reporter. If you have anything to share with me, I'm on Twitter at Janine Zeitlin. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us wherever you get it. It really does make a difference. Co-production and audio editing by Amanda Inscore of Naples Daily News and the News Press. Sound design by Richard Chinqui of WGCU. Executive producers are Florida Investigations Editor Laura Grenias and WGCU Executive Producer Pamela James. Reporting by Melanie Payne and Ryan Mills and Kate Simini. Additional support from Cindy McCurry-Ross, Corey Lewis, Amy Shoemaker, Mark Bickle, and Scott Stein. Legal review by Tom Curley. Theme song by Christopher Russell. Audio assistance by Jared Gonzalez. Thanks to my co-workers Rick Rallone, Luis Sambrano, and Bill Smith for voicing records. Please support journalism like this by subscribing to the Naples Daily News, the News Press, or your local news sources. 
and donating to WGCU Public Media. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at StearnsAndFoster.com. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater. Committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and company events. With online ordering and 24-7 live support, learn more at easycater.com. Imagine a house where every room follows a different architect's plan. Doorways don't connect. Staircases lead nowhere. Lost Patients is a new podcast examining our complicated system for treating psychosis, one that loses patients to an endless loop between the streets, jail, and hospitals. We'll ask how it got so bad and how it can get better. Listen to Lost Patients from KOW and the Seattle Times, part of the NPR Network.